Peter chapter 3. We'll start with verse 15, one verse. 1 Peter 3, 15. Warm welcome to any of you who may be joining us through the streaming, maybe not uh, a regular part of worship. We are incredibly grateful that you are uh, with us this morning. Thank you. Here is our verse today. But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being, being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason, for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Yes, if you're counting, I am coming back to this verse for the third time. To me, it is like a seafood buffet. You know, you get a, a helping of flounder, you sit down and you eat it, you want to go back for the scallops, you want to go back for the shrimp, you want to go back for, uh, for crab imperial. This verse is delicious. So I want to continue to reflect upon it with you. Let me remind you of the context. Peter envisions a situation where a follower of Jesus will be asked, what is the reason for the hope within you? What's prompting that question? Likely, someone is observing you, the believer, suffering unjustly. And you're suffering in a way where you're not resorting to sinful behavior, you're not bitter towards your persecutors, and you are submitting to the authorities who themselves may be making life difficult for you. Very much in the same pattern as Jesus. So if you go back to chapter 2, verse 21, Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was any deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. In the pattern of Jesus, you are evidently bearing up in strenuous circumstances. And you're demonstrating to people who notice that you are living for something nothing this life can steal from you. In other words, you have a hope, a confidence in something that transcends painful circumstances or any sort of human loss. And this hope is seen by your neighbors by your coworkers, by your family members, and they ask you to account for it. So it's in light of that that Peter says, be ready. Can I just attach a word to that? Be ready to react when asked. React. There's a flip side to that coin, be ready to react, and that is, to be proactive 
seeking opportunities, creating opportunities to make your hope known. It's very clear in the Bible that God expects followers of Jesus to make their hope known as a way of life, in word and in deed. God, if you love Jesus, God has gifted you, gifted you with opportunities to make him known in word and deed. This is amazing. The invisible God becomes visible, manifested through you. <laughs> through you and me. His unseen glory becoming tangible through you. This is a stunning privilege. I don't want to move on till it takes your breath away. You have the gift of making God known. Sidebar, the way everyone lives and speaks makes their God known, right? And the way you make your hope known says much more about God than it does about you. <laughs> so I want to explore this stunning privilege that is gifted to you, follower of Jesus, of making God known. Now, we're, we can't move on until, until our jaws drop over this. Is your jaw dropping? Well, I can't see. You have a mask on. I want to I make sense of this. It's a thematic sermon. I've preached twice on this verse under five headings. First, what's the premise? Premises. The first is, God wants to be known. He is a person who desires to be relished. Boys and girls, have you ever felt alone? You ever felt like, I just want to be loved. Well, that's something of a reflection that God is a God who wants to be loved even better and a little different than you. He deserves to be loved. He is owed the worship, the adoration, and the devotion of his creatures. That's the second premise. God is worthy of our worship. In fact, Peter has already said earlier in the book that the goal of your salvation is to make him known. Chapter 2, verse 9, that you may proclaim, you're chosen, you're a holy priesthood, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Why did God save you? So you can make him known. Another premise, 
Making God known fulfills the great two commandments. What better way to love God than to make him known? What better way to love your neighbor than to make God known to them? And one last premise. There's a day when everything will be known. A day of accounting, a day of judgment. Everything will be known. And those who know Jesus will relish in the glory of his coming. This is why in chapter 1, verse 13, Peter has written, therefore prepare your minds for action. Be sober-minded. Set your hope. There it is. Set your hope fully on the grace to be brought to you at at the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. But But beloved, God has given everyone on earth a daily reminder that this world is passing away. The sun sets, darkness comes. This world is passing away and everyone will give an account to God for what they knew and how they lived. And it will be a horrible day for those who don't know God in Jesus. And what a glorious day, like every sunrise, to be greeted on that day by the Son of Righteousness himself, Jesus. Premise. Secondly, there's a problem. The problem is, in our natural state, we don't want to know God. And we don't want to honor him as he deserves. If you consider yourself a non-churchgoer, you don't consider yourself a follower of Jesus, maybe not even theist, you probably know this in your heart. You just don't have an innate interest in pursuing God. You probably know that about yourself. And the sad thing is, we don't want to know God, and we don't care about this deplorable state of affairs. This is why the Bible has some pretty harsh language to describe it. We're blind. We are deaf. We're hard-hearted. We're rebellious. And so the Bible describes us in our natural condition as dead. In darkness. Foolishness. That's the problem. We could go on and on and on about that. Let me move on to the plan. In light of this problem, God has established a recall program. You know, you get a notice from your automobile manufacturer, well, the so-and-so is going to do this and you're going to stall out, it's dangerous. We're recalling your car. You get a notice about the food you've been buying at the store. There's a poison in the food. There's a recall. When our first parents disobeyed God in the Garden of Eden, their souls were poisoned with something called sin. The heart of sin is wanting to know God, but on our own terms, not His. And so Adam and Eve were poisoned. They were banished from paradise because they became unfit for paradise. You can't know God perfectly and have sin. So there are two parts to the plan, this recall program. The first part is God is going to send a Savior. His name is Jesus. And the Christian gospel is really good news. Everything you need to know about God is revealed in Jesus Christ. Wow! 
Everything you need to know about God is revealed in Jesus Christ. And secondly, everything you need to be right with God, fit for paradise, is supplied through Jesus Christ. Now stop and think about it. Do you know any world religion that promises that? The religious leader said, if you've seen me, you've seen God. And it is only through me, the religious leader claims, it only through me that you can be right with God. No one has made that claim because it is so outrageous. But one man, the man Jesus Christ. Therefore, this is a claim to be taken very seriously and explored very diligently. The Christian gospel is peace. It's good news because it is in Jesus we are qualified to get back to the place where it is safe to be with the holy God, the place that we're made for, to know him, to relish him, to see him, to enjoy him perfectly. And to do this, Jesus Christ kept God's law perfectly for you. He earned the righteousness without which he will never see the presence of God. And wonder of wonders, he was treated at the end of his life like he never obeyed God, nailing the guilt of your sin in his body on the cross, thus purchasing the cleansing that you need for your sins. It's all in Jesus. It's good news. You're off the hook. Christ was crucified for you. So it's no wonder the Bible depicts this in a variety of words. He's come to save you, convert you, rescue you, renew you, justify you, ransom you, redeem you, reconcile you, deliver you, wash you, cleanse you. How much time do you have? So that you might believe, become a worshiper, follow Christ, become a disciple. That's part one. God has sent his son, the redeemer, the mediator. Part two, as God makes himself known to people and they fall in love with Jesus, they in turn make this Jesus known to others. If you know Jesus, you are gifted with the unspeakable privilege of making him known to others. <sighs> it's breathtaking. And unsurprisingly, the New Testament depicts this with a variety of images. You have the harvest image. Jesus said in Matthew 9, 35, he went, we're told that Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Now if you're reading that verse, you have to ask the Lord, how do I obey that verse? The first thing you do is pray, Lord of the harvest, send out laborers. The second thing you do is pray, where's my harvest? <laughs> Where are you sending me? You live in the midst of a harvest. So you have the harvest image. And incidentally, parable after parable after parable of the gospel as the seed of the word of God sown in the different ways it brings about the kingdom. You have the fishing image. 
Matthew 4.18, while walking by the Sea of Galilee, Jesus saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and to his brother, casting their net into the sea. They were fishermen. He said to them, follow me. I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. So when you go fishing, you go to where the fish are. <laughs> you seek opportunities to make God known. Um, one other image, the ambassador image. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul writes, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation, or literally, new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Maybe Paul's thinking specifically about his ministry in Corinth, where there was reconciliation needed, but by extension, because that is, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, entrusting to us the message of re reconciliation. If you've received the message of reconciliation, it's been entrusted to you by extension. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. When you say to someone, be reconciled to God after whatever sort of conversation or getting to know them. What are you doing? You're making God known. The God who reconciled the world to himself through Jesus. What a privilege. Wow. And Jesus is very clear, particularly in the Sermon on the Mount, about the effects of our presence in the world. You are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. We could say much about those things. Uh, when Israel is going to be exiled in Babylon, they are encouraged, Jeremiah 29, 7, seek the welfare of the city where I sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. The presence of Christians in a city bring welfare to it, and what does that ultimately redound to? Well, Jesus said in Matthew 5, 6, in the same way, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your fathers in heaven. God is being made known. And you can tell when people start to give God glory. Next is the procedure for the plan. Unsurprisingly, the New Testament describes this in a, with a variety of words. They're more or less used interchangeably. So I've put it into a sentence for you. Christ followers go as stewards because they're sent as ambassadors in order to testify and declare or preach or proclaim or herald or announce or share or evangelize what they've witnessed. It's just there's a whole lot of words used unsurprisingly. And the heart of making God known is Christ crucified. Christ crucified. The love of God for sinners. It's a, it's a message of love. And so John 3.16 kind of sums it up. For God so loved the world 
that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The love of God manifested in Jesus for eternal life. Faith in Jesus. I, I note in your outline that Paul uh, uh, annexes to this a servant attitude. A servant attitude. Here's what he writes in 1 Corinthians 9.19. For though I'm free from all, I've made myself a servant of all. Why, why did he make himself a servant to other people? That I might win them. It's, you could have put that in that sentence I put in the outline earlier. To win them. Now, notice how he makes God known in the presence of different kinds of people. To the Jew, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not myself under the law for approval from God, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, though not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. Read, make God known to them, a God who loves sinners, a God who crucified his son as the payment for those sins. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. A couple case studies. And here you see that these words are used interchangeably. The Gadarene demoniac. Jesus delivers him from gobs of demons. He says, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. When he does that, what's happening? He's making God known. That God loves demon-possessed people. That God loves messed up people. That God saves wretched sinners. Making God known. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. There's got to be one of the first evangelists in history. <laughs> uh, the Samaritan woman becomes, from John 4, we spent some time on that sometime in the last couple of years, she becomes quite the effective evangelist. So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. They get converted because of her testimony, her word. And then they go find Jesus, and it's even more confirmed. <laughs> Thessalonian church also preached on this. We're told of the Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 8, 8, for not only has the word of God sounded forth from you, the whole church, the word of God sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. They wanted to make God known in such a way they put Paul out of the evangelizing business in this region. He had no more work there because of this church. They wanted to make God known because in Christ God was made known to them as a God who loves sinners. Just a slight sidebar, what was the key to there, the Thessalonians' receptivity to the gospel? Well, it's in chapter 2. I constantly thank God for this, that when you receive the word of God, which you heard, you received it not as the word of man, but for what it really is, the word of God which performs its work in you who believe. So the word came to them, and it went out from them to other people. So you have this pattern detailed for us 
that we are sent on mission where we live. Some of us to the ends of the earth, some of us to College Park, Hyattsville, Greenbelt, Lynchburg, Virginia, wherever. It's this privilege of being sent. Paul in Romans 10, how will they call on him who have not believed? How are they to believe in whom they've never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? How are they to preach unless they're sent? And then finally, what's the product? Jesus tells us in his final words to the disciples, Matthew 28, 20, Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, you could, you could also treat this as a seafood buffet and preach about 12 sermons on this, but just notice a couple things. Number one, this daunting task, my notes, Jamie's word earlier, <laughs> this daunting task is guaranteed success because what is promised? The presence of Jesus and the power of Jesus. What happens when you put those two together in the heart of someone who has been rescued by Jesus? They make God known. They make God known so that someone becomes a disciple. So disciples are made when disciples of Jesus go and find lost people. They explain the gospel and that person becomes a disciple and that newly made disciple does what? Goes and makes God known, makes other disciples. This multiplication effect is the way God evangelizes the whole world. Do you know why you are sitting here a follower of Jesus? Not because the 12 apostles came to you with the message of the gospel. They're long dead. They witnessed to people who witnessed to people who made God known to people. Huh, 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 2,000 years, and somebody made it known to you. Praise God. That's the program. I think it's called exponential growth. Is that the right word? You're a mathematician. Is that, come on, somebody help me. Is that exponential growth? You go from one to two to four to 16, to, you know. Thank you, John. Notice the essential content of what dis the disciples are to explain from the words of Jesus. They're, they're hiding away on, uh, after the resurrection. They're fearful behind closed doors. Jesus appears, resurrected Jesus. Luke 24, 44, he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. In other words, I've already said this, guys, but I'm reminding you. Everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, code for the entire Old Testament, must be fulfilled. And he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. What a great prayer for yourself every day. Open my mind to understand this, Lord. Open my mind to, to know you, to see you, to understand you. Make yourself known to me in your word. Was it in the prayer time the other morning? We were talking about the Spirit working with the Word. That was in the prayer time. Thus it is written. What do the Scriptures write? Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance for forgiveness of names should be proclaimed in His name to all nations. The beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you. Stay in the city until you clothe the power from on high. What is Jesus saying? There's nothing new about the Christian gospel. 
It's what God has been revealing for all time, particularly through the Old Testament. Paul does the same thing before King Agrippa. He stands there preaching to King Agrippa, Jesus, his death and resurrection. He says, I'm stating nothing of what the prophet said was going to take place. This isn't new. But notice, this witness is to be accomplished. This proclamation of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is accomplished by the power of the Holy Spirit. He says in verse 49, stay in the city and wait till you clothe the power from on high. So in Acts 1, they're waiting for power. And we're told in verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. For what? You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Power for witness. It's through the Holy Spirit. I can't make God known to anybody. That's effective, except for the power of the Holy Spirit. Power of the Holy Spirit. And I'll just close coming back to this prayer that uh, Paul gives us in Colossians 4. We looked at this several weeks ago. It's so helpful. It's so instructive. It's its own seafood buffet. (laughs) But I'm going to close by reading it and just calling out a couple things to your attention. Paul writes in Colossians 4, 3 to 6, continue steadfastly in prayer being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, making God known. On account of which I'm in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best of the time, and let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you know how you ought to respond to each person. So if making God known is impossible apart from the power of the Holy Spirit, what is it that seems to unleash the power of the Holy Spirit? Prayer. Prayer. What are you praying? Lord, where are you working? Lord, where I live and move and have my being, where would you be making yourself known? Where are you making yourself known? So, You look across the street, and there's the campus of the University of Maryland. Do you know God is making himself known there through college ministries, not least our own RUF, not least through Chris Garriott, sitting right there, making God known right across the street, loving and ministering to students who are then loving and ministering to students. Thank you, Chris, for your labors. We love you. You too, beloved. You, I know you. You want to make God know where you live. Prayer. Give me, show me, Lord, where you're working. Give me the knowledge of where you're making yourself known. And the last thing I'll say, of one of the ways God tends to open doors is the, the more foreign the message is to the people you're speaking to. And we live in a quite unbelieving progressive culture. The more foreign the the message, the more needful hospitality and relationship. So they learn to trust you. They see your hope. And then you get to make God known. Just a silly story. Years ago, I was outside of the church building where I was pastoring in Charlottesville, and this forlorn student was sitting there, and I walked up and said, are you okay? He said, no, I'm sad. Such and such happened. And I started to quote something, and I said, well, John says this. And she looked at me and she said, who's John? (laughs) I had no context for her. I was way out of context. Loving on your neighbors, getting them into your homes, 
taking coworkers out for coffee, living in such a way that you're making God known, and praying they'll ask you. Reactive, proactive, this is the mission of God. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for these men and women and boys and girls who love you and who want to make you known. Thanks for the ways they do that. I don't know the third of it. I don't know the half of it because they're just doing it because they love you. Thanks for the way this church for decades has sought to make you known to the ends of the earth. Thank you for Chris, for Josh, other ministries across the street, loving on students, making them know, making you known the risen, crucified Christ, the love of God for sinners. So, Lord, take and use us that you would receive the glory, the honor, the worship, the praise, the devotion, the obedience, the prayers of this whole world for you deserve it. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen.